Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions. Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith. This is the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. And this week we're digging into fossil fever, which has gripped paleontologists over recent years. We'll be looking at the abundance of new species that are surfacing from the study of specimens held in museum collections. And we'll find out how modern science is unlocking new clues, including chemical ones, possibly even DNA, about ancient species. Now, you might remember a few weeks ago we spoke to husband and wife team Joe Botting and Lucy Muir. They were one of the first, or Joe was one of the first guests ever to appear on the precursor of The Naked Scientist about 20 years ago. When they appeared last time, it was to tell us about this amazing discovery they've made almost on their home territory in Wales of something to rival some of the best fossil specimens that we've got in the world. Well, we were so impressed and we enjoyed talking to them so much, we've asked them back to share their enthusiasm for paleontology one more time and tell us more about their fascination with fossils. Welcome to both of you. Lucy, I want to start with you because you told us last time that Joe loves fossil sponges, but what is your particular paleontological passion? The group I work mostly on is a thing called graptolites, which are a largely extinct group. And the particular ones I focus on were planktonic. So they lived floating or swimming in the sea rather than on the sea bottom. So there's quite a lot of those around. So that's mostly what I do. And like Joe, I'm also interested in the total communities. Just anything that we can find in the rocks is is of interest. (laughs) But so you're both sort of united by the ocean and marine life of days gone by but uh, slightly different size scale i would guess you're you're talking about plankton which presumably that's microscopic the particular plankton i work on they're actually quite large the longest was something like a meter and a half and most of them are a few centimeters you know what they say about um, archaeologists who are who are couples that actually it's a very good good thing to be married to an archaeologist because the older they get the more interesting they get and that's something that many couples <laughs> say doesn't happen in their relationships i suppose with you guys that must happen as well Yes, well, Joe's got a rather impressive beard as he's got older, and the beard, in fact, looks remarkably like the fossil sponge that he found a few weeks ago. So he's getting even more interesting. But how did the pair of you, I'll turn to Joe now, um, how did you both sort of get into this subject? What what drew you into the world of paleontology in the first place, Joe? Um, I, I started quite early, so uh, I suppose I was one of those children that just was looking into anything natural history, you know, turning over logs and stones and peering into the undergrowth. And so I found my first fossil when I was about five and um, never really stopped. I, I didn't really take it seriously as a career until I went to university and realised you could actually get paid to look at fossils, which was a bit of a novelty. Um, 
And then uh, sort of switched from theoretical physics, which is what I went there to do, and uh, found that the maths was too hard for that, and the, and the fossils are actually much more fun. <laughs> Were you the same, Lucy? Not quite. I actually went to Cambridge to do plant sciences, and I, I grew up in an area without many fossils at all, so I never went fossil collecting as a child. But, but when I went to Cambridge, I needed a third subject in my first year and I didn't really want to do more chemistry. So I thought, oh, I'll do some geology for the year. It'll be interesting. And after the year, I just stuck with it and ended up specialising in paleontology. And the rest, I suppose you could say, is history. But in the case of paleontology, very long term history, isn't it? What, what would you say to people who are aspiring paleontologists who, who are interested in this field? Where, how do you get into this? How's a good place to start or where's a good place to start? Oh, it, it, it's actually a, it's one of the very few sciences that you can do with virtually no resources. So the way to start is just to go out looking at things. And there's an old adage that the best geologist is the one that's seen the most rocks, uh, which is not technically true because it's quite possible to look at a rock and not think about it in the slightest. Uh, but you can spend a lot of time looking at uh, outcrops, trying to interpret them. And the more you do that, the more it starts to make sense, the better your eyes get, the more you start to be able to see things. And it's really interrogating everything you see, trying to interpret what, what these rocks and the fossils in them actually mean, uh, which lead you to just starting to understand it, I guess. And I would add that there's, thanks to the internet, there's so much good stuff about paleontology out there. There's YouTube videos, there's blogs, you can read a lot of these scientific papers online. So it's really possible to learn a lot about paleontology just from your computer. So I'd urge anyone who's interested just to read as much as they can. I completely agree. The, the amount you can learn off YouTube these days and what you can learn it is absolutely phenomenal, isn't it? It's, it's interesting that given this is such an old discipline in terms of what you're studying, how young it is as a, an area of study, in the sense that although people stumbled on fossils thousands of years ago, they didn't really know what they were or give them much thought. And it wasn't really a scientific discipline, correct me if I'm wrong, until the Victorians came along. Pretty much. I mean, people, as you say, have been collecting fossils back to the Stone Age. You know, there's necklaces of trilobites in Stone Age burials. But realising that there were the remains of animals and plants was really, you're right, a 19th century thing. Well, almost, because there was a book by Adrian Mayer, The um, First Fossil Hunters, where she actually traced back a lot of ancient mythology um, to fossils. So the idea of the griffin, it seems, came from the uh, protoceratops skeletons in the Gobi Desert on the Silk Road, um, guarding their eggs. So in a sense, that was actually paleontology. It was taking fossils and interpreting them in terms of being living animals and uh, and reconstructing what they might have been like. Dragons, too, is another option that's probably from dinosaurs. Was Charles Darwin cognizant of fossils? Did he use them to reinforce his arguments? Or did he not have any ability to put a date on them and therefore they weren't so useful to him? Bit of both, really. I mean, Darwin was actually a very good geologist, and he's famous for collecting various fossils on the voyage of the Beagle. It turned out to be quite important. But at the time he was working, geology was still being worked out. So people knew that the Earth was old, but not how old. And this is before we had things like radiometric dating to get an absolute age. So you could say, well, this rock's older than that one, and that one's older still. But you didn't know how old any of them were. So Darwin tried to calculate based on uh, how fast the land was eroding, how old the earth might be. And I think he came up with something like 40 million years, which as we now know is far too young. But at the time, that seemed really, really old. So he was definitely thinking along the right sort of lines. But of course, 
we've got you know 150 years since Darwin, so we know a lot more. <laughs> and technology has helped enormously. I, I presume your field must be one of the beneficiaries of the sorts of technologies that we can throw at this now. Yes, and there, there's so many new sort of imaging uh, techniques that are being used. The micro CT uh, for three-dimensional things, synchrotron. You can sort of you know, blast very high-energy rays at tiny fossils and see inside them. Um, even just standard microscope technology and electron microscopes, it's all allowing us to go back to old fossils which have not really been studied in that sort of level of detail and interpret them in entirely new ways. So it's showing us um, just entirely new ways of looking at things which would previously been probably ignored for being too small or not obvious enough. It's only been the last few decades that we've gone to trying to study these very difficult fossils and that's where most of the interest is coming from. Uh, and Lucy? Oh, I'd say that there's still a lot of room for the good old-fashioned going out with a hammer to find yet more fossils. Oh, yes. We still need more stuff to study, so yes, please go out and find more. <laughs> <laughs> you two have been brilliant. Thank you for joining us again. It's lovely to speak to you, Joe Botting and Lucy Muir, on the programme for Thanks, the Chris. second time Thank because you. we liked them so much the first time. Keep it up, guys. Well, they've told us why that gets them out of bed in the morning and why their field's so exciting and what it can tell us. But we haven't actually told you at home what a fossil is. How does it form in the first place? Well, our colleague James Titko has been speaking to Professor Paul Barrett, who's a dinosaur expert and a fossil specialist at the Natural History Museum in London. So fossils are the remains of past life, often animals that are completely extinct that have no living counterparts. And they can be any part of an organism. So they can be shells, they can be bones, they can be fossil leaves, they can be pollen, they can be the microscopic insides of single cell organisms. All of them are essentially the hard parts of those animals that over time have become replaced by minerals and turned to rock. Uh, there are a few other rarer fossils that we get that are things like soft tissue fossils, things that preserve the insides of an animal like organs or things like skin or fur, but these are much, much rarer and get preserved in lots of very different ways to do with the chemistry of the rocks that they were deposited in. So, But most of the fossils we have are of the hard parts of an organism, and generally all of the soft, squishy bits are long lost to the ravages of time. Let's take those hard bits, the bones, the skeletons. What is the process by which they're usually preserved over millions of years? So the main way in which any of these things gets preserved is the animal dies somewhere where there's active sedimentation going on. That is the deposition of things like mud and sand and gravel so that the remains get buried very quickly, hopefully so they're not on the surface too long for scavengers and wind and, and rain and weather to affect their appearance. And as they get buried, they become encased in the rock as it forms over time. Uh, those sediments are compacted, lose water, change their minerals slightly and turn into rock and the bones or shells preserved within them also change so on a molecule by molecule basis those original organic components of bone and shell are replaced with rock forming minerals to form an exact rock replica down to the microscopic level of what the original shell or bone used to look like. And where is it that we're most likely to find these rock replicas of the bones and shells? So mainly in rocks we call sedimentary rocks. These are rocks that deposit by rivers and lakes and in oceans and that form by the accumulation of sediment. Various other places as well, such as deserts, a couple of other places on land. So that's the first thing you want to find. And then depending on the type of fossil you're interested in, you need the rocks to be of the right age as well. 
So for me as a dinosaur worker, I'm particularly interested in rocks that date from the Triassic, Jurassic and Cretaceous periods between about 240 and 66 million years ago, which is when dinosaurs were alive. When we talk about how they're found, this discipline that we know as paleontology, when did this all begin? How long have we been looking at the fossil record for evidence of what life was like on Earth all those years ago? So people have been finding fossils as long as there have been people. And we have examples from very early human sites where fossils were obviously picked up because they were realised to be something unusual or something curious. Uh, But the scientific study of fossils really only goes back a couple of hundred years So a few pioneers, people like Leonardo Vinci, in fact, were already speculating about fossil remains, wondering why these shells turned to stone appeared at the top of mountains long ways from oceans. But it's only really in the 19th century where we also have the development of various other branches of science, in particular geology, that starts to give us an idea about the age of the Earth, uh, the length of time that there has been, Uh, for animals to appear and evolve and also developing ideas about evolution. And as a result, we've really only started to think about them scientifically for a couple of hundred years and bring them into this bigger view of the evolution of the Earth as a whole and also their influence on what we know about the evolution of life. And then fast forward a couple of hundred of years, dinosaurs, they're a staple of any natural history museum, let alone the Natural History Museum, where you're speaking to us from. And I understand you've got a brand new exhibit at the moment. Can you tell me a bit about it? We do. I mean, dinosaurs always capture the imagination, partly through their bizarre appearance and size. And they're a very good gateway for getting people interested in thinking about past lives and then the aspects of earth science and biology that stem from those. So at the moment, we have a big new exhibition that's only been open a month or so so far, which is called Titanosaur. And Titanosaur focuses on one particular dinosaur, an animal called Patagotitan, which is from Argentina, which is a contender for the crown of the largest animal that's ever walked the earth. And I'll be very specific when I say walked the earth uh, is in terms of an animal that lives on land. So the largest animal ever is a blue whale, which lives in the sea. Uh, But living on land poses a large number of extra challenges to becoming big. And Patagotitan is an animal that may well be pushing at the envelope of the very largest animals ever. Incredible. What did it look like? So Patagotitan was what we call a sauropod dinosaur. These are the dinosaurs with large barrel-shaped bodies, very long flexible necks and tails, and four stout columnar legs. And there are a lot of famous examples that people might be familiar with, like Diplodocus, for example. So it's a member of that general family of dinosaurs. Uh, It's a very large example. We think it weighed about 57 tonnes and was about 37 metres in length. And to put that in some perspective, that means it weighed about the same as eight or nine fully grown African elephants. And actually, it's about 10 metres longer than our beloved Diplodocus replica that we have at the Natural History Museum. So these are really gigantic animals, and you get a sense of the scale of them when you walk up to it and you realise your head just about comes up to its knee. Amazing. That was the Natural History Museum's Paul Barrett. He was talking with our own James Ditko. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and this week we are studying what fossils can reveal to us about life past and possibly present, including the fact that some of the residual life of what once lived might still be locked away in the fossils we have in front of us. 
First, though, we want to give you a flavour of just how much of a busy time it is for people who are trying to keep pace with paleontology right now, because researchers around the world are, on average at the moment, naming a new type of dinosaur every week. So we've decided to spotlight two studies published in just the last couple of days with the scientists involved. While finding new species is always very exciting, scientists are also interested in further illuminating the history of the animals that we already know existed. James Titko with this. It's fair to say paleontology is booming. An offshoot of the public's demand for dinosaurs, fueled by Hollywood blockbusters and big-budget documentaries, is the ever-increasing number of researchers rifling through museum collections to reassess old specimens in a bid to unlock new perspectives on the ecosystems of the past. Adele Pentland from Curtin University in Australia has been doing just that. So the specimens were discovered in the late 1980s at a site which is now called Dinosaur Cove. Since excavations conducted, they have uncovered hundreds of fossil specimens from dinosaurs, early mammals, freshwater plesiosaurs, crocodiles and some rare pterosaurs. Pterosaurs are exactly what Adele is interested in. These flying reptiles populated the skies at the same time as the dinosaurs were roaming around on land. Often people will call them pterodactyls, but calling the entire group pterodactyls is like calling every single dinosaur Tyrannosaurus. They are different to dinosaurs. They're not flying dinosaurs. And they vary quite a lot. Some have wingspans of 30 centimetres, whereas some of the big ones have wingspans of 10 metres. So some of the small ones ate insects. The group that I mainly work on, they appear to have eaten fish. And then some of the big ones may have been scavengers feeding on carrion. Paleontologists are rarely working from a full body specimen in their research, are they? Was this the case this time? Yeah, so in the paper, we describe two bones. They're actually not from the same individual either. Uh, One is a partial pelvis and the other is a small wing bone. Based on comparisons with other pterosaurs from around the world, the partial pelvis, uh, that individual probably had a wingspan of at least two metres, whereas The really small wing bone looks like it belonged to an animal with a wingspan just over one metre. And that is the first juvenile pterosaur that we have from Australia. They're approximately 107 million years old. And if that wasn't enough fossil news for one week, how about something a little closer to home? Hello, my name's Neil Gostling. I'm a lecturer in evolution and paleobiology in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Southampton. Spinosaurs are one of the most exciting, almost definitely one of the most controversial, but one of the most charismatic, I think is a good word, uh, theropods, the carnivorous dinosaurs that have ever existed. But they've got a weird head, which is uh, superficially crocodilian. They've got a very long, elongated face with pointed, circular, conical-shaped teeth, um, perfect for grabbing slippery fish. And we know that they were eating fish because there was a specimen uh, discovered in 1983 called Baryonyx, which means heavy claw, because they have big old heavy claws as well, for sort of like hooking. And the fun thing about them, I mean, if you want T-Rex and Triceratops, these large animals everyone knows about, they're North American. But the Spinosaurs are European, and the good thing is that we've got quite a few species in Britain as well. Like Adele... 
Neil and his team observed from old specimens that the story of spinosaurs in Britain was not what past paleontologists might have originally thought. PhD student Chris Barker made several discoveries from studying fossils stored within the collection of the Hastings Museum and Art Gallery. In 2016, we thought spinosaurs living in Britain were, were it was baryonyx, that's what it was. Very quickly, Chris um, identified some unique characters and showed that not only were they different from one another, they weren't baryonyx either. So we went to three species of spinosaurs in Britain. And then this is really exciting. We found <laughs> the smallest piece of dinosaur we could possibly have found, a single tooth. But Chris, again, spent an awful long time analysing it, picking out all of the potential details and analysing those to show that this is also not a baryonychine spinosaur. Baryonychines are the baryonyx-related group. This is a a different animal. It is not. Now, we can't, we shouldn't, we can't, and we haven't named a new species based on a single tooth. But we've shown that it isn't any of the groups that are alive at the time and that we know about today. So there's a small sample of some of the work going on in the world of paleontology at the moment, which have been advancing our understanding of ancient animals. But running parallel to this golden age of research is the boom in the price of fossils sold at auction for eye-watering sums and going into the hands of private collectors. For example, a Swiss auction house sold a Tyrannosaurus skeleton made up of the bones of three different T-Rexes for $6.1 million just last month. I wanted to find out from our scientists how potentially damaging this trade in dinosaur bones is for future work like theirs. You may not know, but for a researcher to describe a fossil specimen as I have done in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, that fossil can't be in a private collection. It has to be in a museum collection because the concern is that that fossil needs to be accessed by everyone. It can't just be in the control of one person and they can't just let their friends study it and not let you know other people who might contradict them not look at it that's Mm. not how science works all of the work that i've been doing has been on publicly owned collections and yeah i mean we're trying very hard to democratize science and make it available the paper that came out today about the tooth is freely available and unfortunately if things go into private private collections no one can do anything with them no one can see them and it's it's I, I, it's a it's a very great shape and many thanks to neil gosling from the university of southampton and before him curtin university's adele petland they were speaking with our own james titko now so far in the program we've dwelled heavily on the physical remains of past life in the form of the hard stony replicas that most people associate with the word fossil but in recent years opinion has very much shifted to accept that even ancient fossils most likely also contain some of the chemicals that were present in the original life form including its proteins its fats and possibly even its dna this is now known as molecular paleontology Landon Anderson works on this at North Carolina State University, where he's currently finishing his PhD. You know, when someone would go out into the field and dig up a fossil, sure, it would have the shape and structure of a bone. But the general view on that was that minerals had come in and replaced the original organics that were there. And that would now just be a replica of the original organism skeleton or bone. And that was, for a while, the general view of what a fossil was. So it was the form, but 
but none of the fabric of the thing that had once lived. Yes, and even for a while, we didn't even know whether the original like microscopic structure of the bone itself was preserved. You know, where all the blood vessels had been, or you know, the cells in the bone had been, whether that was preserved as well. So when did that begin to change? When did our view begin to shift? That view, you know, that the overall fossil bone is not just, you know, a rock replacement or mineral replacement of what was originally there, changed roughly around the turn of the uh, 1900s to the 21st century, when paleontologists began to look at the microscopic structure of fossil bone um, or fossils in general. And, uh, you know, like, for example, if they had, you know, a bone of a dinosaur, they could take thin sections of the bone and look at it with a microscope. The actual tissue structure was at least replicated in minerals. So you could see what the structure of the bone was like when the organism was alive. That was sort of around when we started to figure out there might be something more to these fossil bones than we had previously thought. And what was that insight? Or what data or discovery began to provoke people to think that this isn't just well-preserved microstructure, that there are things in there that might be part of the original beast or being that gave rise to that fossil? The major discovery is around 2005, Mary Schweitzer actually reported out of a a T-Rex bone from the Hell Creek in Montana, the presence of soft, flexible blood vessels and cells, and really changed the way that paleontologists kind of viewed fossils in general. They weren't just these mineral replicas of the original organism, but some of the original tissue might be there. And if that's the case, then there's a chance that could tell us what it looked like and how it lived back when it was alive. I met Mary Schweitzer about six or eight months after she published that paper you just referred to. And Mm -hmm. she told me that the scientific community, when she stood up at a conference and and said, I think I've got original tissue from a T-Rex, people laughed at her and told her she was misguided and must have done her experiments wrong. Presumably that view has now changed. Yeah. When Dr. Schweitzer first reported her findings, there was a lot of controversy. One of the main ideas or hypotheses proposed to explain the soft tissues, in the case of, you know, they weren't original soft tissue, was that they might be bacterial biofilms. But over the years, that has been tested. And the data in general supports that these are indeed the original soft tissues scientists are finding in these bones. I almost feel like it's sort of bringing colour television to previously black and white images. It's almost like another yeah. dimension in paleontology that we're, we're into now with this. So what can it add that we couldn't get just by looking at structure before? Yeah, so well, for one, just for like the organismal biology, you know, these ancient organisms in general, uh, you know, we can learn things about them that through their soft tissues and the chemicals preserved in them, that we otherwise would have no other way of knowing. So it can tell us a lot about their biological adaptations to their environment, kind of how they lived. DNA must be one of the the holy grails here, must be a horrible phrase, but it Mm -hmm. it must be one of the things that's a, a target because it can tell us so much about the evolutionary history of an organism, where it came from, who it's related to, and so on. We're in the sort of million year regime of published data on ancient things with DNA in them. Do you think it's feasible we're going to see T-Rex DNA in the near future? Oh, man, that's a big question. Um, everyone likes to you know, know the 
answer to will we ever get you know dinosaur DNA and you know after that obviously you know whether you know we'll ever be able to clone dinosaurs there are studies out there one recently published that reported not DNA sequences but um the presence of some structure that may be DNA they haven't actually you know sequenced it yet but they used a chemical that binds specifically to the double helix structure of DNA and they were able to show that this chemical actually bound to a specific location within what they reported as cartilage cells from a duck-billed dinosaur. Will we ever be able to sequence that? That's a whole other question because to sequence DNA, the uh, reactions necessary, they require it not be heavily damaged. And obviously, to get that in a dinosaur fossil, you know, pristine DNA, it's a bit of a challenge. It is indeed, but after all, as the great Richard Feynman once said, science is like sex. Both have practical results, but that's not why we do it. And that's all we have time for this week. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>